0: You can reach us at proponacy.com. You are being forwarded to the contact center. Contact center Have you ever been totally and completely? psyched out in the the sense that you were just completely destroyed in a small amount of time. Nothing actually happened to you, but you were completely psyched out. My first memory of being psyched out, just just totally psyched out. I was 16 years of age. I was playing American Legion baseball for Uncasville, which is a, a small town in Connecticut. We're playing a baseball game against the I think it was the the Jewett City uh, American Legion team. And the pitcher on the other team was a guy by the name of Bill Dolly. He was a guy who was 16 years old. He was the, maybe 17 at the time. And this guy was the best pitcher in Connecticut. He might have been the best pitcher in the entire Northeast. Who knows what? Just, just so you understand, this guy went on to become a professional baseball player, ended up playing for the Cincinnati Reds. So this guy was a big dude. I think he was six foot five. And this guy could really throw the ball hard, and he was just someone that everyone was um, was intimidated by. Well, anyway, I had never played against him. Thought I was a pretty good baseball player, and couldn't wait to have my chance against this this kid who everyone had already known. All the the scouts were at the games, and and this guy was clearly going to go on. He was going to get drafted, and so I had an opportunity to um, to bat against him. And so I remember uh, getting up, and and uh, I think I batted. Uh, Fourth or fifth in the order, and you know, so I didn't even get to see him till the second inning because he struck out the first guys, you know, first guys up, and I think somebody might have hit a dribbler or something. Anyway, so when when I got up to get into the um, get into the batter's box, I was I was excited to go up against him, and um, and obviously a little bit nervous because he threw the ball really hard, and you know, when you if you've ever played baseball before, you're kind of standing there trying to time. When they throw it, so that you can get the timing down with your, you know, with your swing. And of course, it just seemed like I had to go swing really fast because the ball was getting there really, really quickly. And of course, when you're standing in the batter's box, I mean, standing in the batter's circle, you really have no concept of just how fast things are going to be when you get into the batter's box. So I got into the batter's box, and ju- just a couple things about uh, about me. I was a right-handed hitter. I have a tendency to get towards the back of the box. For those of you that know baseball. But I also have a tendency to crowd the plate a little bit, too. It was just kind of the spot where I really like to be. And and the other thing is, is that when you're hitting, or at least when I was a hitting, and if there's some new way that you hit and what I'm about to tell you is different to the way it's supposed to happen, um, again, don't send me any sort of uh, emails. Um, just, just, just trust me that this is the way it was when I was playing baseball. So you would grip the bat um, fairly loosely. And as the pitcher started to wind up, you would, you would get in some sort of a rhythm with them. And so there was a little bit of a coil where you would literally literally just turn back to coil so that you can explode and hit the ball. And as you turn back to coil, and I mean, we're talking inches of, of this coil, at least for me, you'll see some guys that'll, that'll, that'll kind of start to take a step. Well, anyway, as I coiled, you then grip the bat and then, of course, then you take your swing and, and go and do that. So so I stood in, got ready to go. I you know he he started to wind up, and so I started to I started to coil. and before I'd even coiled, before I'd even grabbed the hold of the batter, it started to squeeze a little harder, the ball was already in the glove. Strike one. And I was I was flummoxed. I was flabbergasted. I would never seen anybody throw the ball that fast. And so my first thought was, well, you know what? I, I I'm gonna need to be quicker. I, I I've gotta I've gotta be quicker. I've gotta I've gotta coil. I've I've gotta get myself ready to go. So so, you know, stepped back in there again, got rid of the second switch. I went to I went to grip the, the the bat again, strike two. I still hadn't even moved. And so I stepped out of the batter's box and all of a sudden something overcame me, which is I can't get out of the way. If this guy throws this ball in my head, I can't get out of the way. I can't even grip or coil fast enough to to get ready to hit the ball. If this guy throws it in my head, I cannot get out of the way, he's gonna kill me. So now, I've taken a step back in the batter's box, I've moved a little bit farther away from the plate, and and I got in there, and so now I'm not coiling, I'm not thinking anything, all I'm thinking is, you need to jump out of the way if this ball's coming at you. Well, throws the next pitch, remember now, I haven't, haven't, um, it's 0-2, I haven't swung at the ball. The next pitch comes, it misses the strike zone by maybe an inch and a half. I should have swung in it because I was trying to protect the plate, but I wasn't thinking about protecting the plate. I was just thinking about protecting myself. So now it's one and two. I'm sitting there. I look over at my coach. My coach goes, you got to swing. And the next reach came, and I didn't move. I didn't swing. He called strike three. I went and sat down. Totally, completely psyched out. Totally, completely psyched out. Just so that I don't leave you thinking that I'm the biggest wimp on earth. Thought about that for the next couple of innings when I got ready to get up again, which was probably the fifth inning again. They're just he's just mowing people over left and right. Before I got into the batter's box, I said, you know what? I don't care where this first pitch is. I'm going to swing at it so that I can hit it so I can get out of here as fast as humanly possible. I'm just going to try to make contact with the ball. I went in there. I, I was a little bit farther away from the plate. He got ready to throw the ball. He threw the ball, and I swung as quickly as I could. And I was a right-handed hitter, and I hit it over the first baseman's head, which means that I swung d- incredibly late. But I swung, I hit a line drive over the over the first baseman's head. It landed inside the right foul line by like an inch and a half, and I ended up getting a double. So I was one for two against the great Bill Dolly, who went on to be a professional baseball player, but was totally psyched out of my mind, and I lived to be able to tell you about it. Well... There you go. There's my, there's my story for the day. The reason that I'm telling you about Psych Data is because I want to talk to you today about Psych 101 in the contact center. And there's no better place to look at Psychology 101 than to go back and take a, a look at Abraham Maslow. And he, of course, came out with Maslow's theory. And Maslow's theory, which he did in the 40s, was a discussion of human motivation and how humans were motivated. And if you'll just stick with me for another couple of minutes, I'm gonna take this human motivation and Maslow's theory and turn it into something that you can use as a pathway to success and a pathway to problem solving in the contact center. So Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs had four levels to it and they built on top of each other so it was a pyramid. So at the bottom of the pyramid was survival, next up was security, next up was love and self-esteem, and then the top one was self-actualization. And so what Abraham Maslow said is that when people look at things, when human beings look at things, they run through this hierarchy of needs. So first up is survival, which means that at its base level, humans are worried about food, air, and water. If they can't get survival, they can't, they they, they won't go anywhere else, they'll stay at that level. Constantly, they'll never leave that level. So the very first human motivation is to survive, is to have food, is to have air, and to have water. And once I've hit survival, I go to the next level, which is security, which is safety. So if, so if I've got food, air, and water, am I safe? Am I secure? Can I protect myself? So you go survival, then you go security, then next up is love and self-esteem, because if, I'm, if, if, if I can eat, and I'm, and I'm safe that now I'm looking for love and I'm looking for self-esteem and I'm looking for relationships and I can go on and, and, and live my life. And then the top level was self-actualization, which Maslow never really described. And in, in since that's occurred, which has been almost, you know, 60 years, nobody's really taken it to the next level. It's just kind of this next hierarchy or level of, of highness where you're, you're, you're doing some sort of a pursuit. I think that, you know, I wonder sometimes whether billionaires get there every once in a while and, um, You know, because they just they already have everything. But there's no real definition of what self-actualization is other than it's some step where you step out of yourself and you're looking at things from a different perspective. And anyway, so if you look at the if you look at just the United States right now with the you know kind of post-COVID or in the middle of COVID, this entire country was in the survival mode. They're in the survival mode because they were scared to death they were gonna die. And and I would tell you that right now that the country's in this kind of security mode now, right? Which now all of a sudden we we we've got a solution, you know, which is uh you know, which is either a, you know a vaccine or natural immunity or whatever it is, but everybody's worried about their safety, and so everything is all about security and safety. And if you remember back a number of years ago in the in the late, late Clinton years you know cigars and champagne and scotch was going and we'd kind of hit into that love and self-esteem and so you can see the country post 911 we're obviously in the survival mode uh, you know we started to have a whole bunch of electric grid blackouts and you know terrorism threats and those kind of things we immediately go back to security so you get the concept so anyway so if we take this if we take this Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we apply it to the contact center then our survival, the food, air, and water in a contact center is people in the seats, is having the right people in the seats. Because if I don't have the right people in the seats, there's nowhere to start. There's nothing worse than coming in at the beginning of a shift or the beginning of a day and not having enough people in the seats. Because you know that you're gonna have a disastrous day. Our survival is dependent upon us having bodies in the seats. And oh, by the way, because we're um, uh, you know in kind of an omni omni-channel environment, you got to have bodies in the seats. Your IVR has to be working. You got to have the right number of chat people, and your website better be up, up for self um, for self-service as well. So there's more to it than just the people in the seats. But but everything starts with with that survival phase, which is people in the seats. And every single contact center problem that you have, if you want to, the first place you're going to start is, do I have the right people in the seats? Because you can't really get anywhere past that initial stage. So having the right people in the seats is our survival. Next up, our security, our safety is quality and training. Because if I've got the right people in the seats, but they're dumb as a post, or they don't know what they're talking about, or we've got no control over what they're saying, then our security and our safety is out the window. And so so having people that are, having the people in the seats, but having them know what they need to know is, Uber critical to your success. It's why we have quality monitoring. It's why we do extensive training or as much training as we, as we can. It's why we do burst training, You know, send coaching st- tips, do one-on-ones, do side-by-sides, do anything that we can to try to get the content and information into the people's heads. It's why when we have high turnover and we bring new people in, we're getting the people in the seats, but they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. For those of you that measure uh, average handle time, you'll obviously see that your new employees have really high average handle time, and as they begin to understand the information, begin to get the same recurring problem, begin to be able to recite information rather than have to look it up, their handle time goes down because they become they become smarter they they understand what they're saying they've had enough training and so your security begins to build the uh the, the the next step up after our survival which is people in the people in the seats our security which is quality and training next up to compare with uh, maslow's love and self esteem is having jazz people having having jazz people and that they're engaged and and you know, we can. I I don't want to say happy people. Um, I don't want to say positive. I, I'm talking about jazz people that are people that are excited to work, that they're they're excited to be in their jobs. And I recognize the fact that you're not constantly going to have everybody excited, but they're they're encouraged, they're engaged, they're improving and they're growing. That's the sign of 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 that third level when if, if if we've got the if we've got the right people in the seats, if we if we've we've done a good job with with, with training and we're doing a, a good job with with measuring quality and doing burst training and coaching and we've got that taken care of and the people know what to say, then they've got to be motivated to say it. And they've got to be encouraged to say it and engaged to say it. And they have to be in an environment where they're engaged at, at 9 a.m. in the morning at the beginning of their shift, but they're also engaged and they're encouraged and they're growing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in their shift or 3 o'clock in the afternoon in their shift. Well, how do you know this? How do, how do I know that they're, that I've got jazz people and they're engaged? Well, you know, maybe you're running some ENPS surveys or some ESAT surveys or you're doing some sort of pulse checks so we're keeping track of where they are hopefully you're asking every day and you're having one-on-ones and we're and you you're taking the pulse and you're understanding and recognizing what they're doing and this is not something that you can just wish this is something that you have to be purposeful about you have to be purposeful about engagement and you know of course if you don't know by now you know my company sells a tool that does engagement that that allows you to be on purpose about your mission and on purpose about engaging engaging your employees and and so this 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 jazz people these people that are engaged is an ongoing process. And of course, as soon as you lose lose people, as soon as they leave, as soon as we um, we don't have enough people, which means that our queue times go up, or there becomes more stress in the center, or we get a new set of problems, or a, a, we have a new a product offering that all of a sudden. These people who were jazzed and encouraged and engaged, all of a sudden they don't know what they're doing, and life gets a little bit tough. What do they do? Or they're going to pop right down to security? They're going to pop right down to security because we have to retrain them. We have to we have to re, re give them the information that they need to be successful. And of course, you know, if they leave you, then you pop all the way back down to uh, pack, pop down to survival because now I don't have enough people in the seats, and we got to bring more people on the seats. I think self-actualization, this kind of nirvana, where are we when we're there? I think, that, I think that I would call self-actualization stage kind of reward and just reward in keeping people around, which is an ever-growing, ever-improving center. And it's a center where you've gotten to the point where you can really begin to talk about people's careers. And sometimes that's a challenge in a contact center because, well, we've got careers because you can be a supervisor, but we don't really have the other careers other than if you just want to stay where you are. Well, I think when you hit this self-actualization stage in a contact center, you, you've you created an environment where you can have a career in your center, where you can stick around for a long period of time, where people can, can, can be jazzed and engaged, but they also can be ever-growing, ever-improving, and they can see themselves in a career. I know that the airlines have some people that have been, you know, working in the um, working in their contact centers and ticketing, you know, for 30, 40 years. And I know a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're getting benefits and and you know they can fly all around the world they probably have great seniority so they can go anywhere they want. But there's also more to it than that 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 keeps them around. And and I think that that a growing contact center that can achieve this kind of self-actualization reward keeping around I think they're growing in all the alleys and that's that's professionally personally emotionally and relationally so they've got the alleys down and you're probably sitting there going well listen I've been in my contact center I've been leading my contact center for a while or maybe you've just taken it over or maybe you're just starting as a supervisor you know what we're so far away from self-actualization we're still back you know, fighting through, uh, fighting through survival at this point. We're just trying to put people in seats and then make them smart enough and, and, you know, jazz and engage. We can't even hit that self-actualization, but I think that's the place that you're trying to go to. And so I think if you use this, this formula as a way to look at the problems in your center, you can begin to find out where they are. Obviously we're going to look for the right people in the seats. Then we're going to look at quality and training. Then are they motivated, engaged, you know, excited, um, prepared to answer the phone, and then once we're there and we've got those pieces going, then then it's, you know, how do I I build the alleys? How do I build the professional, personal, relational, and emotional circumstances that will allow us to be a growing, ever-improving, career-oriented kind of contact center? Well, there you go. There's podcast 54. I started this podcast out by asking if you were psyched out. Now, I guess I'm going to ask you, are you psyched? Did I give you some information that you can put to use on a daily basis in your contact center. And this was Basic Psych 101, and I hope that it's something that you can use. Listen, you have the capacity and capability to be a great leader. I say that week after week, and and hopefully, hopefully you're beginning to believe it. You're beginning to believe it because you recognize the fact that if you put your mind to it, if you work hard at it, that becoming a great leader is something that you can attain and achieve. It's something that you can learn and something that you truly are capable of becoming. And if you're already there, well, then you just need to get better. It's been great to talk to you this week. Look forward to talking to you next week. Have a spectacular week. Bye-bye now. You are being forwarded to the contact center code.